Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Welcome to episode 00009 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm your host through to eight tonight. I'd like to always start off with acknowledgement of the traditional owners from which I am broadcasting, and that is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So happy NADOC week, everybody. Voice, Treaty, Truth is this year's theme. Here in Victoria, NADOC, as always, starts on the first week of uh, July. And there's also a, a national NADOC week as well that starts next week. So yay for us, we get to celebrate both. Uh, if you want to check out what's happening across the state this uh, NADOC week, just visit nadoc.org.au and you'll see a whole host of activities you can participate in, you, your family and your loved ones. I know some of you will be getting down to our Triple, Triple R World HQ this Sunday to check out the extended version of Still Here with uh, Neil. And uh, as has been mentioned plenty already, but there will be live performances from Alice Skye, Kian Bumpy, Jiri Jiri and William Alm. And um, if you want to participate in that, just uh, email stillhere at rr.org.au. You have to be a subscriber and you have to give your full name and you have to do it by 10 o'clock on uh, by Thursday the July the 4th, so in a couple of days. Um, you have to have a current Triple R subscription and um, it's uh, only for uh, th- entry through the Triple uh, R guest list only, so will, winners will be uh, notified by email. So get on it, but um, just between you and me, I might have something else to say about that uh, later on in the hour, so uh, don't go anywhere. As for uh, our little show tonight, I will be having a yarn with the author of a new book called Mandatory Murder, a true story of homicide and injustice in an outback town. That'll be um, just a fascinating read and uh, uh, should hopefully be a fascinating conversation. And later in the hour, I'll be speaking with the Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People, Justin Muhammad, about a task force that has been established to look at the grotesque overrepresentation of Aboriginal children and young people incarcerated in the justice system here in Victoria. So the best way to connect with me throughout the show will be via my Twitter handle, which is at Mr DT James, M-R-D-T James. So stick around. This is the mission on Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. You're listening to Triple R now on the mission. We're going to um, our first guest. Stephen Sherbet is an award-winning journalist based in Alice Springs. He has spent most of his career as a reporter working in remote northern Australia, including in Mount Isa and at Catherine. Stephen won the NT Journalist of the Year Award in 2018 for his reporting on the case of Zach Grieve and a series of features looking at police investigations into Indigenous murders in the Northern Territory. He has written a book about the case of uh, Zach Grieve entitled Mandatory Murder, 
and it's uh, released through ABC Books and is available in all good bookstores, and if they don't have it, order it. And uh, Steve is on the line with us now. Stephen, welcome to Triple R. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, now, this is like a... Uh, the whole story is like a massive, you know, whodunit murder plot twist. It's it's quite epic, the, the actual tale itself. But could you give us an overview of the events that happened between the brutal murder of Ray Nisiferio and the mandatory life term given to um, a young Aboriginal man, Zach Grieve? Yeah, so I was living in Catherine in 2011 when a, a body was found on the side of the road to Catherine Gorge, which is, you know, the, the most biggest, most impressive tourist attraction in the area. Now, Ray Nisiforo, who was the victim in this case, was, uh, he was well known to the police and not for good reasons. He had a couple of DVOs taken out on him. Um, he'd been in trouble with the cops numerous times throughout his life. So when they, uh, when, when they, when the police found his body, they started, of course, talking to people that, that knew Ray, who might have it, some, you know, an issue with him, who might want him killed. And as a part of their routine investigation, they started talking to his ex-fiancee, a woman named Bronwyn Buttery, and her son, whose name was Chris. And um, very quickly, they arrested Chris and two friends uh, and charged them with murder. And a month later, they arrested the ex-fiancee, Bronwyn Buttery. And to, to, uh, to really cut to the chase, mm. in the end... Um, they were they were all tried for murder, and uh, Zach Grieve was found guilty for murder, even though the judge believed his story that he told at trial that he wasn't actually there and and didn't physically com- help commit this murder. But he got a guilty verdict and um, and a life sentence with twenty years non parole. And the the kicker is that the judge, when sentencing him, said this is an unjust sentence that I have to give you because of mandatory sentencing laws here in the Territory. So the judge didn't want to give that sentence, but he had no choice. So under, under the NT sentencing laws, Zach received a mandated 20-year minimum, um, even though he wasn't even involved in the murder. Um, the, 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 the judge acknowledged that when sentencing him, whereas um, Chris Melchenko, the man who admitted to committing the murder... And uh, Bronwyn, who um, also, you know, instigated the murder and and and, and um, was heavily involved in it, received lesser sentences. Um, h- how does that happen? <laughs> so Bronwyn was able. Uh, she was tried for murder, but the jury gave her manslaughter instead. So she served four years in prison and is out now because all of this happened in 2011. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, there's this idea of mandatory sentencing, which is when the parliament, in, in our case in the Northern Territory, decides that they want to, they they're going to set a limit for a certain crime. So in the territory, it's 20 years. Um, non-parole is the standard. Now, Chris Malishko was able to access a rarely used provision under those laws, where um, he was able to argue that he was afraid of his life and, and the life of his mother from the victim. So he was given life with 18 years non-parole. Now, Zach Grieve got caught out in a bind because you don't actually have to commit a murder to be found guilty of murder. Uh, he, he helped plan the murder, and his story and the story of Chris was that he pulled out at the last minute. Yeah. Now, what we don't know is whether the jury just didn't believe him and, and, he, and the jury believed that he was there, or 
whether they 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 accepted his story, but he was found guilty on this technicality of um, of not taking reasonable actions to um, to help prevent the murder. So it's it's that's a bit unclear. But because he was found guilty of a murder by a jury, he's been he is in this bind because the law says he has to go to jail for at least twenty years. Interestingly, um, in Victoria there's a 25-year non-parole period for murder. So, And, of course, you know, most people who commit a murder probably deserve something like that. Yeah. But occasionally there's a technicality where judges don't have discretion to apply an appropriate sentence. Uh, the, the Victoria is um, quickly becoming the incarceration state. There's more people in prison at the moment than, um, you know, per capita than we're um, at the height of the, the gold rush, believe it or not. Blimey. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, um, we'll touch on that a bit later with our second guest, Justin Muhammad. Um, so the, the judge who sentenced Zach himself was absolutely mm. scathing of the laws that he was forced to use. Um, Another quirk I found of the the trial itself was Zach seemed, correct me if I'm wrong, but Zach was the only one out of the four that actually had a unanimous decision against him by the jury. That's that's right. So um, they, yeah, all 12 jurors voted guilty, whereas Chris Malishko, the bloke who admitted to swinging a spanner into this guy's head seven times and bludgeoning him to death, got a majority verdict. So, um, of course, ideally, you have a unanimous verdict from a jury, but after a couple of days, the judge can give what's known as a black direction and can accept a majority verdict of 10 or more out of the 12 jurors. Um, Now, that means probably means... So Chris was arguing trying to get his... Uh, conviction down to manslaughter, as his mother successfully did. But um, he wasn't able to get there, so he he was found guilty of, um, of murder, not manslaughter. And um, the, the there has been um, uh, petitions from people in the public and, of course, by um, Zach's family trying mm. to get his... Um, or to get him out of prison in the first instance, but the... Um, the administrator of the Norte actually ends up acting on the advice of the sentencing judge um, and a whole group of people lobbying to reduce the 20-year minimum to, to 12 years. That, that happened last year, didn't it? That's right. So the judge, all he could really do in his sentencing was say, look, I reckon you deserve 12 years for agreeing to help plan a murder for, for what you did. Now, so the territory administrator, which is like a state governor here, eventually... Um, there was a mercy appeal lodged and, and that was um, farmed out to the Attorney General's Department here in the Territory who investigated it, made a recommendation to Cabinet and then Cabinet made a recommendation to the Administrator. Now, the Administrator here is effectively you know, the Queen's representative in the Northern Territory. So we're in a situation where we are relying on the Queen to fix up laws that have produced unjust outcomes. This is in Australia in 2019. 2019. Yeah. Um, it, it just, it, it seems so crazy. Um, and the, the history of mandatory sentencing in the Territory is, it's a law and order auction come local elections. And yeah. if you look like you're soft on crime, you, your opponents will go to town on that. And this is happening all over the country. Um, we're, we're getting quite bad laws. So it's been an okay outcome for Zach Greve, but 
the mechanism of doing that is just so crazy. Um, also, uh, we had a, a change of government in 2016 and, and we had a Labor government in the Territory and it would be very hard to imagine a Conservative government, if they happen to be in power in the Territory, um, recommending that this sentence be adjusted and correcting that injustice. So, as we speak tonight, Zach Grieve is, is still in prison. Um, he's been Correct, in prison yeah. since 2011. Yeah. Um, when, when is he due to get out now? So that'll be, he'll be out in, uh, well, he'll be eligible for parole in 2023. So uh, he's, he's got four years left. Um, I haven't actually been able to speak to him since that news. I, the corrections department here have banned me from talking or communicating in any way with that. Wow. Um, this is this is like this is like apartheid South Africa. I mean, fair income. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But his mother says that he's going well. That he's uh, he's in. He's trying to do some study in prison. Um, and but then then you have a whole. You know, if you think Victoria's the incarceration capital of the world, come to the territory because um, to get be eligible for parole, you need to take certain courses and you know show that you're you're trying to get your life back on track. And those services and those courses just aren't available um, at the numbers that are required in prison. So it's kind of setting people up to fail. But, look, his mum says that he's going pretty well, that he's, you know, he's obviously excited by that news. She was hoping that he'd be released sooner than that, but that always seemed pretty unlikely to me, given that the judge recommended 12 years. And so there, there is unlikely to be any further intervention from, uh, and I use that term <laughs> advisably when I'm talking about the Northern Territory, yeah. um, there's, there's unlikely to be any further intervention in his case until he is eligible for parole. Yeah. I think that's right. And so the, the case was appealed here in the Territory, uh, and... I think the lawyers were umming and ahhing about whether it was worth going to the High Court, but um, the High Court's ruled on a couple of issues that are pertinent to this case. One is the responsibility of, you know, you don't have to commit the murder to be convicted of murder, and the High Court, that that comes from um, uh, a ruling from Hong Kong, which was adopted by the British, and, you know, this is boring history, but the High Court is separated from... Um, the rest of the UK and, and the rest of the Commonwealth and, and has kept that law in place. And they've also backed mandatory sentencing laws in other cases as well. So um, there's very little prospect of um, a, a positive outcome in the High Court. So all they could really do was throw themselves on the mercy of the administrator who represents the Queen and, and they've had a reduction in the sentence. It is 27 past 7 here on uh, Triple R. You're listening to The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm speaking with Stephen Schubert, the author of a new book called uh, Mandatory Murder. Now, you've been in the Territory for... Um, you've been reporting in the Territory for um, a long time now, Stephen. Um, how would you perceive the, the, the plight of, I guess, Aboriginal people and, and communities up there at the moment? How, how, how are things travelling generally? After seven years in the Territory, my overwhelming impression is that not much is going to change. Right. Um, I think... I think... <laughs> I, I, I don't, I'm not born and bred here, and I have a, a sister who lives in uh, inner city Redfern in Sydney, and, you know, I would describe her as a hipster, and we kind of... She goes to Invasion Day rallies and, and that sort of thing and, and calls for, ch you know, ch signs change the date petitions, and 
we sort of argue because all of that stuff is important and the big things, the big symbols matter. But you've got people living in entrenched poverty here. You've got people who have got, uh, you know, been three or four generations living on welfare. So there's no culture of actually going and, um, and, and working or, or doing something productive with your time. I don't think it's a lack... I don't think it's a lack of money. I don't think it's a lack of... Um, I, don't, I don't think there's malice behind it. I just think most of Australia just doesn't care. Um, and if, if the federal government, if the territory government were actually serious about making a difference, they could improve people's lives. But then, you, you know, on all of the closing the gap measures, you know, health, education, incarceration rates, it is staggering in the Northern Territory how... Um, how it's really troubling, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, then as we learnt the other week, the Northern Territory is still the home of, um, you know, rheumatic fever and the rheumatic and rheumatic heart disease due to overcrowding and and, and poor and cramped um, living conditions. Yep. Wasn't yep. wasn't the Northern Territory intervention supposed to do something about all that? Wasn't that the uh, the grand plan, the grand design? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and surprise, surprise, nothing happened. Yeah. Um, look, there there. There were a few things that, well, depends who you ask, whether they're positive or not, but, uh, you know, some people, particularly grandmothers, support their welfare management, so you, you get a card and you can only spend your welfare on certain things, so you can't, basically, you can't buy cigarettes or, or booze or, you know, you can't gamble it away or anything like that, which is pretty patronising, but a lot of grandmothers I've spoken to say, well, they like it because it actually means that money's being spent on food for kids. Um, so it's it's... It's confronting being in the Territory. And the latest, of course, waste of paper was the territory, the Royal Commission into the Youth Justice System here in the Territory, which was launched after the ABC's Four Corners um, yep. got their hands on the, the footage of kids being tear-gassed. Zilch, zilch has come from that. Nothing's come from that. It's come from that. And the, the most pertinent bit was on the day one, when the Council Assisting tabled 30 reports that had been produced in the last 20 years that covered areas that were within the terms of reference of that Royal Commission. And he was making the point, we're not looking at anything new here. We know what the issues are. It's just that nothing is being done to actually fix them. If there was a magic wand that you could wave, that would go some way towards fixing the very complex uh, multitude of issues that are entrenched for generation after generation... Um, both systemically and interpersonally and laterally, <laughs> what would you what would you wish for? Look, you could do one thing, but the problem is that um, all of the issues are interconnected. So the health issues yeah. are connected to housing issues, as you pointed out. There's often overcrowding, rundown housing, so people have health issues from that. Uh, then you've got people not not kids not going to school. Um, because, again, overcrowding is a big issue there. And then you've got um, high rates of incarceration, which comes from low employment and low economic opportunities. I think one thing that really would help is proper housing that is um, of a high standard and, and appropriate uh, quantities. Because you get here in Alice Springs, people sort of, you know, they might have a three-bedroom house, but... If footy carnival's on, they've suddenly got 16 family members coming to stay with them and you've got people staying in tents and whatnot and so, you know, toilets get 
blocked and and in places like Catherine where down. where um you know it gets the, the wet season hits and you get people coming into town for supplies but then they're stranded that's right that's right so housing is at the root cause of a lot of these issues and there's a perception that you know people are aboriginal people are not paying rent for housing and that they're just trashing the joint and yeah, you know they are paying rent um, and if you had uh you know 16 20 people living in your three-bedroom house it's probably going to get pretty pretty uh run down pretty quickly as well so um i think Good housing wouldn't fix every issue, but it would go a long way. Well, Stephen, thanks for uh, your insights. Like I've said, his book, Mandatory Murder, uh, basically the story of um, uh, Zach Grieve and um, a brutal murder that he was either directly or indirectly um, uh, a participant of, is um, available in all good bookshops. I picked mine up um, from a shop in Carlton uh, last weekend. Um, so thanks very much for uh, coming on to the mission tonight, Stephen. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Triple R. So we've heard about the uh, the Northern Territory, but uh, meanwhile, back here in Victoria, the uh, self-proclaimed most progressive state in Australia, 16% of children in the youth justice system are Aboriginal even though they make up only 0.7% of the state's overall population and 1.6% of 10 to 19-year-olds. A um, 2007 Victorian government review found that overrepresentation is caused by intergenerational trauma, broken connection to country and community, over-policing, not enough focus on diversion and exclusion from mainstream culture. Which brings us to our next guest on the mission. Justin Muhammad is the Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People. Justin is a Gurungurung man, and in his role as Commissioner, he's Victoria's, he will be leading Victoria's first task force on young Indigenous people in the criminal justice system. He'll be touring the state, which I believe he's already started doing, um, to investigate community-based solutions that work at keeping young Aboriginal people out of contact with police and the criminal justice system. And Justin is on the line with us now, fresh from a NADOC event, I believe. Justin, welcome to Triple R. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. No worries. First of all, um, give us an overview of your role as the Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and uh, Young People. Yeah, so the role um, was um, originally, and the inaugural commission was Andrew Jackamoss, and the state government um, had created this position to um, have, a, I suppose, a a focus on Aboriginal young people, both in um, out-of-home care and youth justice. And to have a standalone commissioner was um, a very, um, you know, advanced sort of position to have as we're in a progressive state, yeah. as other states and territories of the time didn't have one, and uh, many they still don't have one. So my role is predominantly um, it has powers to, uh, to oversee and um, ensure that the best interests of the child, either in um, the out-of-home care system um, as well as youth justice, education, health, um, that, that our children are getting the best of what the system is supposed to do and, um, and ensure that if, when, when things aren't working as well as they should be or we see that there are trends which are tracking in the wrong direction, that we can step in and we can um, hopefully investigate and provide information back and uh, recommendations, more importantly, to um, the different levels of government within the state. Yeah, I think I think that's one thing we can say here in Victoria is that there is an acknowledgement, and I would say I would 
suggest a bipartisan acknowledgement that you know there is a dramatic um, over representation of Indigenous people in the justice system, but also, of course, um, with your remit, the uh, young people in, in the justice system. The the task force um, has been set up, and you're starting consultations now. Um, what what are the par- parameters of of that task force? Yeah, so the task force, um, the task force was, there was a task force back um, in 2016, it kind of completed, which was Task Force 1000, which was um, focused on out-of-home care, and Andrew, um, as the commissioner, then headed that up. There was a recommendation in the um, Ogref, uh, Armitage Ogref report about a task force similar um, to look into Koori Youth Justice, and that's where we're, we're um, embarking on right now. Yeah. And um, together with the Department of Justice, we're... Uh, going to um, go to 13 different communities or regions, I should say, um, in Victoria, uh, have regional forums, as well as have um, a more deeper dive into some of the more complex cases, um, individual cases, to see how we can get better outcomes. And for two points, one is to reduce the over-representation and to reduce young people re-offending and coming back in, because we know that close to 65% of young people in the youth justice system, Aboriginal youth um, Aboriginal young people in youth justice uh, are re-offending. So um, there is a component of that. Um, together, and that's where we want to get out to the regions, is to understand what's happening in those regions, to expose the good and the bad, and to build up a report which can show a process and a way forward and an action plan that we can reduce this over-representation, which continually keeps to haunt not only our state, but many states in uh, Australia of uh, um, the over-representation of Aboriginal young people in the youth justice system. So I believe as part of that task force, you've already been out to um, a couple of regions and, and, and been um, yarning with people. Um, uh, what, is, what are some of the early things that you're, that you're hearing? Well, we've been to two regions so far, and... Um, the, the region in the in the region that there's, there's certain things which um, we've heard about how um, government organisations, education, Department of Health and um, um, Health and Human Services, Department of Justice could communicate better, have better working relationships as well with the Aboriginal community organisations that they also could build into that. In one of the regions, they had a very good um, that was one of their real strengths, and they want to continue that. Um, hearing the voice of Aboriginal young people is something which has come out fairly clearly that we need to understand and hear the voice more of the young, young person and how the systems are working for or not working for them. Um, which is vitally important because we have a, we have a very young um, Aboriginal population here in Victoria, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we do. And uh, the other part with the task force, which will sit side, which will travel this long um, side by side, next to the task forces, as the Commission for Children and Young People, we've also, we've caught our own inquiry, um, which we'll be running, which will be able to speak to young people individually, and also not only young people that are involved in the youth justice system or that are in the youth justice system, but other young people that live in community that may be affected or may have um, close relatives which are in the youth justice system to hear their views and, and look at and talk to people that are doing some of the proactive things to reduce or to keep our young people away from the youth justice um, system, which is very important. So our two regions that we're focused on have one of the better records as far as having low rates of young people in the youth justice system. And um, hearing some of their strengths is um, culture seems to be um, continually 
interwoven with everything they do, and which I think is very important, um, as well as this really good um, this, um, this this good part of working together, not only just within their own um, towns, but across the local region, other towns that are located next to each other, where they'll you know the the, the towns that are one hour apart. They'll make the trips, they'll make the connection to make sure the young person, that safety net, is as safe as it can be and people don't slip through those cracks. It is 11 to 8 here on Triple R. My name is Daniel. I'm speaking with Dustin Muhammad, who is the Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People here in Victoria. So you've got, you've got a lot on at the moment, Justin. You've got that you've got the um, the task force, the Indigenous Young People um, uh, in the Criminal Justice System Task Force, and at the same time you've got an inquiry that um, you've, you've dubbed Our Youth, Our Way. So I'm guessing one is looking at the, the, the push factors that gets children in and young people into the, um, the justice system in the first place, and the other one is kind of um, looking at sort of more remedial type measures that can be put in place to prevent that from happening from and to prevent people from going back into the justice system once they've once they're out of it was that is that basically what it is yeah that, that, that's that's probably um, pretty close to it i mean there's there's the task forces obviously um generates our work about the young people that are already in the system um so that so that that generates our, how we look at the statistics and the and the trends and what's happening for those young people that are in the system now um, our inquiry will allow us to, to also look into that, but also look at the other factors that are that are keeping young people out of that, and what makes young people strong and resilient. Um, what are some of the barriers? What sort of relationships they're having? Um, and, 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 and importantly, um, to you know address this sort of part of how much do they feel a part of their community, the, the you know the, the broader community. Does racism play a part in this? Is there other factors that we need to look at which um, can make our young people, you know, strong, resilient young people? And um, we, we see plenty of examples of this. And we know there's a lot of work that's been done which doesn't get um, highlighted or spoken to, um, which are very important with keeping our fabric of our community together. I just... Um I just think, uh, you know, a large part of it is that our people are dying too too young. And so we have people that are on the trajectory to becoming elders that are dying far too long, and so they're too young, and so they're actually unable to impart that culture, their lived experience to, to the younger generation, and that can leave some people feeling a little bit rudderless. Yeah, look, there's a, we know there's a couple of things which kind of impact on this, and it's interesting that you've mentioned Family connections and on country is very important, but some of our young people in the youth justice um, system, they don't have the access to that. Um, over 85% of young people, Aboriginal young people in the youth justice come from out-of-home care backgrounds, so that there's sometimes a family network isn't as strong or isn't as um, accessible um, as other Aboriginal young people might, might be experiencing. So that's where the community steps up, that's where local initiatives and solutions step into play. Because um, the other reality is many of our young people aren't living on their own country. They're living in other parts of Victoria, uh, maybe even in the state where they've moved down here or they've been placed down in the state of Victoria. So we're seeing already that we know that there's local solutions are a key part of reducing this and, and embedding a strong, um, fact, uh, a strong factor in our young people as they move forward and hopefully reach their full potential. So where can people go if they want to um, participate in some of these discussions? Where, where can they get further information from? 
Yeah, so I'm, I mean, on our um, website at the Commission, but um, the other part, which we'll, as we go around to the regions, there'll be more um, notification and um, news happening. We're going to be going through a number of the local uh, Aboriginal community-controlled organisations and, um, and, the, and the departments, obviously. Um, our forums aren't closed. I mean, we'll, we'll be sending invitations out, but if people want to turn up, we'll talk about the system process of that and, um, and just probably for the community to understand that we are going to be speaking, and this is where our own inquiry comes into, into its own, is that we're going to speak to as many young people as possible to hear their voice and to hear it in their, in their environment and where they are comfortable. So we're, we're trying to do this. Um, every aspect of both the task force and our inquiry is in the best interest of the child. So we, we were keeping that front and centre in everything we do. But um, we know that that's um, a pretty big task, and we're hoping that um, by the end of October we've, we've got, we would have got around to the state and we'll be um, pulling the report together and um, early next year. March 2020. The finders. Yeah. Yeah. Well, best of luck. It's a, it's a very important task that you have, and it's a very complicated one too. But um, uh, you're renowned for being a good listener, so um, you're the man for the job. So uh, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on the show tonight, Justin. And get back to... No. Wh- where are you actually? What, what You're at a NADOC um, function? No, I'm at the University of Melbourne. I'm at the law faculty. We just gave a talk about particularly what we're talking about now, uh, out-of-home care and um, youth justice. And uh, the former um, commissioner, um, commissioner of the um, of, um, Big Gura, he was also here on the same panel as I. Oh, so fantastic. Good night. And hopefully we um, got people thinking about how to address um, uh, th- these issues that are facing the, this nation and um, in particular Victoria. Well, say hi to everyone for me. Um, thanks for your time, um, Justin Mohammed. Thank you. Triple R. Well, that's uh, about it uh, for the uh, for the mission this evening. Superfluity is next. Um, a heavy show, so I'm going to go home and uh, have a beer. Um, and also to sort of alleviate um, the the intensity. I think those of you that have been listening over the past few weeks know what is coming. So until next week, goodbye. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.